everybody, and welcome to the Ribosome Podcast. My name is Luke Roberts, and today we're speaking with Dr. Artem Babian, a Banting Research Fellow at the University of Cambridge. All right, uh, thanks so much for taking the time for talking with us today, Artem. Um, I guess sort of the first question we ask everybody is we're, I guess, sort of on the tail end of things, if the governments are to be believed, you know. How's uh, your life during this uh, global pandemic? Kind of, uh, I would say, upside down as much as everyone else's was right uh things are getting better i think you know it was this um there was really intense lockdown initially like um we had a young daughter and we like there wasn't really data on how very young children were going to be affected so i was very conservative um right. in those first few months and then it was just this kind of like peeking our head out of i remember like leaving the house for like to go just outside for a walk for like the first time in a couple of months. And it was, it was unreal um, mm -hmm. because it was just like essentially the grocery store and just chilling at home. Um, but you know, now it's the new normal and the UK I think has just resigned itself that like, it's just now business as usual, even though the case numbers are climbing, it's just, you know, full steam ahead kind of. And I kind of, I guess in some like sense agree with this, like, we we need to be dealing that this is part of our world now and like we need to find a balance of you know mm -hmm. how we're going to be managing this in the long term you know there, there are no good answers right yeah i agree and it's hard you know like you mentioned especially with the lack of data like we won't know what the best thing to do would have been for probably a long time and i i think under a certain sense you, you you're right that we do need to find a balance because it's e even here we we just in alberta we set a you know the government set a limit saying hey as long as the icu beds are not completely slammed you know we're going to keep going you know yeah. everybody that's been vaccinated are the ones who are going to do it if you haven't done it yet I, it's you're not going to do it so yeah and I, I mean like even with that it's like you know we we had almost unrealistic expectations for the vaccine going in right and so because mm -hmm. there was this idea of like oh if we can just hit 70 percent, we'll get herd immunity and then we'll drop r naught down and then of course you're not accounting for viral evolution which is a, oh yeah a, a big part of the equation and they and do that of, yeah yeah exactly um which is like kind of you know i you know really we all should have seen that one coming right there was no way that that was going to be avoided um, I, for me, what I'd really like to see is like a, a really good, clear picture of like how we're going to be dealing with this in the future. What are the important numbers that we need to know immediately, like in the first couple of weeks? And mm -hmm. then what are going to be like the strategies for trying to like nip these things in the bud? Like, don't ever let it become a pandemic. How do we just stop outbreaks um, when they're in these like very low numbers, when public health measures actually will work? Um, and so, you know, that, that I think is going to be kind of the future is like, we need to at all costs avoid this like 16 plus trillion dollar pandemic from happening yeah. again. Right. Uh, so that's, that's what it's going to be. Who knows? This is above my pay grade. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's other people's decisions to make. Um, hopefully better educated people's decisions to make. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. that, that's, that's where we come in, right. It's like, we just need to provide the data for them. Perfect. Exactly. Exactly. And so since we're already sort of on the topic, one of the the big things uh, that you've been a part of during this whole thing is this Serratus project or the discovery of over 100,000 novel, I want to say, is it just novel RNA viruses or actual novel coronaviruses? It's RNA viruses, right? right. So um, for coronaviruses, there were 44 known and we found an additional nine like truly novel, uncharacterized ones. So mm -hmm. not like the big jump, but if you look at all RNA viruses in general, there were 15,000 known and we found over 130,000, right? So nearly an order of magnitude increase in the total RNA virome. Yeah, which is, you know, that's a few when you when you yeah. think about it. And I mean, this is just, again, you know, um, I think one of the the things I was trying to grasp about this was this is just... Um, this isn't an exhaustive um, detailed characterization. Um, what this was, was, and, and feel free to obviously correct me, you're the expert, you should probably be 
I shouldn't be telling you how you did your work. Um, no, but no, from I what am. I was from, from reading the paper and listening to the talks, um, you know, you needed to find a way to basically really rapidly analyze a lot of the sequence data because the ways that were currently being implemented were super laborious in terms of computing power and were either going to be super expensive or take forever. Um, is that sort of, I hit that kind of? Yeah, yeah. In the and, middle and there? more importantly, I would say that even computing power is human power, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of steps that go into viral annotation and interpretation of a virus. And if you look at like the official classification guidelines, they are completely ununiform. So, you know, what defines right. a novel species for coronavirus is like 90% identity of this protein called RDRP or this mm -hmm. gene, the RNA dependent RNA polymerase. But then if you go into like, Levy varicota, which is a totally different, like, you know, viruses that infect yeast, say, um, right. they use like a 50% identity. And mm. it's not, you know, like, yeah, okay, there are biological differences between these viruses, but the definition of a new virus is so fundamentally different depending on where you look on this massive tree of all viruses. And so, like, the first thing that we really had to do was just say, okay, we're not going to make everyone happy. We're just going to take one definition. It's as rigorous as we can make it. We made it like very clean. Um, it's 90% identity within a subsequence of RDRP. Um, you can, the way I like to say this is like, think about it as 16S um, barcoding for bacteria. And right. like you can define species of bacteria by a 16S sequence. Um, it's essentially the same thing done computationally for RNA viruses. And so if you take this and like, that's our, that's our uniform unit of measurement, right? You have like unit of viral species, mm -hmm. um, you get 15,000 in the reference databases. And then when you applied it to our data set, you would get 132,000. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And I mean, even just maybe to take a step back is, so I'm interested in how this project sort of came about and maybe just a big overview for everybody listening. Um, everybody's saying that it's more than just 10 people. Hopefully it's more than 10 now. Um, but everybody at home is that, um, and I think you should be the one to do this as the person who did it. How did this project come about? And sort of, how did you decide where to start looking? And how do you, you know, you said you had to set one definition, but, you know, at a certain point, you do have to do that. You, you know, um, how did you come to, I guess, all of these important key decisions along this pathway? Yeah, I, I mean, it was an adventure, um, if I'm frank, right? Like there was a lot of learning and refining, but I can walk you through this story. It, it's, Absolutely. I think, a really interesting one because it's also a bit unusual for academic research. Um, so me and my buddy, Jeff Taylor, who is my climbing partner, he mm. had just come back from Columbia. He was teaching English and we were out climbing and he didn't have a job, right? He's a like HPC, high performance computing engineer. That's what okay. he does. And he was just talking about like, oh, like here are the things I'm working on. He was doing like a 3D printing project at the time. And I just kind of pitched him and I said like, hey, like I have, you know, this idea on how we can use Amazon uh, cloud computing to do informatics analysis. I was actually building this whole thing to do ribosomal DNA variation in humans. So the idea mm -hmm. was to take all the human data and then look at genetic variation in ribosomal DNA. That's what I was working on at the time, essentially. Um, and so, you know, we went home, had a few beers, had some mac and cheese and planned out basically what this architecture was going to look like. And that was the blueprint for Serratus. That was March 2nd, 2020. Mm -hmm. And so I think like March 8th or 8th, 10th, um, you know, I, I went kind of into lockdown. And then by the end of the month, it was clear that like this thing was not going to blow over in a couple of weeks and we right. were entering a pretty serious pandemic. And so I think by mid-March, we, we just pivoted and said, like, we, we need to be helping, right? Like, I, mm -hmm. I think everyone felt a responsibility or not everyone, but me and Jeff and then a lot of the people who I ended up collaborating with, we felt that we as scientists have a responsibility to try to help um, kind of the global community fight this pandemic. 
and mm-hmm. you know we we could do bioinformatics or so like okay that's what we're gonna really apply ourselves to and we frame the problem as um what are the where are all the coronavirus is possible found in all the sequencing data that's been sampled from the last 13 years so mm-hmm. the background there is that in february of 2020 so what kind of started all of this was um NIH, uh, who manages the sequence read archive, they copied all of the sequence read archive data onto Amazon Cloud and Google Cloud, right? So there was this like multi-million dollar infrastructure program that just went online. And the idea, and I knew this from kind of previous research that I did, but um, that means that the ability to read the data is unprecedentedly fast. So right. all of a sudden, there's literally tens of millions of gigabytes of this sequencing data. It's been collected by scientists for the last 13 years. And you know, anytime a scientist does a sequencing experiment, when they're publishing or when they're done with it, they would put that into the sequence read archive and that gets mm-hmm. deposited, right? And people yep. have always treated the sequence read archive as this kind of dead archive where like, it's just, it's there. And then it's very slow to download that data and analyze it on like your local computers. Mm-hmm. But that entire equation changed because now all of the data is sitting like right in the cloud, right? So when you're running a computer, um, like essentially it's as if that data is sitting on a hard drive connected to your own computer. And all of a sudden you have millions of gigabytes of data just sitting there waiting. Mm-hmm. And then we were just thinking about, can we create a system that like does this analysis super efficiently and analyze for a very specific question, like where are the coronaviruses across millions of gigabytes of data? And that's that's essentially Serratus in a nutshell. Um, the project then like we took it to like a bunch of different hackathons that were happening and right. Pretty much it was like, um, oh, if you're, you know, if you're willing to help, you know, this is an open project, like an open science project. So everyone is welcome on board. And we would just essentially try to like pitch it to anyone that would listen. I would send out emails. Um, so like Robert Edgar, who's ended up on the paper, um, he is the developer of like Muscle and um, the multiple sequence alignment program. And like I was you know, I sent him a really like naive, I was like, I want to do a multiple sequence alignment of all coronaviruses. Um, The muscle, like muscle isn't working when I just like put it in. Do you have any suggestions? And then when I explained the project to him, he was like, how about I, how about I help? Right. And he just joined the project. The same was true pretty much with all the collaborators. You know, I, I, most of them, I, I would just ask a question about like what they were doing and then instead of just giving me an answer, they would join as collaborators. And then we would work really, really intensely for um, the first batch was like three months or so. And so we just built this like bioinformatics dream team um, of literally like the best bioinformaticians in the world. And we had this like really, really focused problem and everyone was working on optimizing it and trying to trying to do this like massive search. No, and I mean, that's that's incredible. And I think... Yeah, you're probably right in that even, you know, I'm guilty myself of thinking of the sequence archive of like, oh boy, am I going to download that thing? You know, am I going to like try to find something in this? Like, do I have enough hard drive space? And then how slow is it going to be trying to, I'm not going to put this on, I can't put this on my RAM. I'm going to have to put this on a hard disk somewhere, right? I mean, thankfully, um, solid state drives are kind of cheapish now compared to what they used to be. But if you wanted to do this even like, five years ago, most of this would be on a spin up, spin down drive. And so, you know, good luck doing this in any sort of fast fashion. That, I mean, that, that's the point of optimization that we got to was that it, it was actually even within the cloud, it was slowing it down. Um, This is just like, you know, kind of crazy, but the, the hard drives in any of these like cloud computing systems are slower Mm -hmm. than the networking with which these CPUs are connected, right? So we actually would just like do our best to like rip out the hard drive wherever we could and we would do things streaming. So it would like open a network connection with a few uh, few hundred 
millisecond delay, and then it would stream the data directly into the RAM, and then that would go into the CPU, right? So we wow. were bypassing the hard drive because to write and then read would, would slow things down. Mm -hmm. um, to a place where it would be very difficult to actually get through all of the data you needed to get through. Yeah, because so, you know, to put this into perspective, where we analyzed 5.7 million NGS sequencing libraries, which uh, wow. when you would decompress that into FASTQ would be about the equivalent of 20 million gigabytes of data. That's 20 petabytes. Um, That's a few. And that entire process was done in 11 days, right? So the entire 5.7 million got down, uh, got done in 11 days. The maximum rate for Serratus is over a million libraries a day. Like if we, if I stay up all night and like make sure I monitor it, it will mm -hmm. go past the million a day. And then the other big optimization was that it only costs half a penny per NGS library to do the analysis, right? So mm -hmm. like um, that's like paying for the CPU time essentially. No, and that's another important factor is, yeah, these sometimes a lot of these projects get sort of shelved based on the amount of resources it would take, right? And not even, you know, as well as you mentioned, uh, human time, right? Like you've really cut down on that and uh, actual just cost. Or if someone says, oh, I want to do this huge project, but it's going to cost me tons of money to even like start analyzing these sequences. And I'm not, you know, it's hard to pitch that sometimes. They go, well, what are you generating? And you go, well, I'm going to just analyze these old things, right? And I saw that there was some pretty... Um, interesting little cases um, that you had found, um, especially with some uh, client samples. The one I'm thinking of specifically was uh, two patients that had um, an unknown sort of viral infection and that you seem to classify them as having a specifically um, mouse infecting virus, if I'm remembering it correctly. Um, yeah. Just want to like talk about that for a couple of minutes because I thought that was super interesting listening to one of your big talks about that. Yeah, so... Um... You know, there's like two ways that we eventually frame the problem was where are the novel viruses and then where are the known viruses in places that you wouldn't expect to find them, right? Mm -hmm. And for coronaviruses specifically, we like found coronaviruses in samples that were annotated as corn, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very likely that this like corn from a field in China had like a bat that had a coronavirus fly over it, pooped on it, and then that got picked up in the sequencing study, right? Which kind of exemplifies why you would want to do something is like globally unbiased and how powerful that is because now you can think of it as like we have GPS coordinates and a time collection date for this corn sample. And then that puts this coronavirus that was originally seen in Hong Kong in 2007 we now see it in mainland China in like, I think 2013 based on that corn sample, right? So wow. this is kind of creating, using this sequence read archive is this giant surveillance network for where pathogens are showing up um, kind of unknowingly. And one of the cases that you mentioned um, was there were two patients that were, they were immunocompromised children and their serum was like, they were doing viromics. So sequencing the serum um, because these two kids had fever of unknown origin. Mm -hmm. And when they were doing the analysis back in like 2010, they were looking at human pathogens that potentially could be in here. That data got deposited in the SRA and essentially forgotten. We reanalyzed it and we were looking for all RNA viruses. And so we could show with high confidence that there was actually uh, whole genomes for a murine hepatitis virus, which is a beta coronavirus mm -hmm. um, that's not normally known to infect humans, but it was found in the serum of these two children in St. Louis. So the, the really important thing to remember is that that doesn't prove that there's an infection occurring, right? Mm -hmm. um, just like the corn sample, right? The corn is not infected with the beta coronavirus. Right. It's just co-localized. So, um, that that might be some sort of contamination in those children, or it could be that this virus was actually present, like it could be present in their serum, it could be a, like a downstream contamination, or it could be right. a virus that's found in a sample, but is not causing an active infection. But I would argue that because they are immunocompromised children, you know, it, it definitely is worth investigating if that they were infected by MHV. Right. And that, that was sort of the thought I had as well. You know, it's, 
virtually impossible now to go back and prove this is why you had the fever, right? Yeah. But you say immunocompromised and then, oh, I've got this virus in the serum. You know, it, it's hard to not want to immediately connect those dots, you know, but you know that you can't ever truly connect them. But you can maybe get that line most of the way, I guess. You'd be like, eh, it's almost there. Yeah, um, and, and this is actually a bit of a danger, I would say, with this type of analysis because you're analyzing millions of data sets, right? So, you know, you kind of by definition are going to be getting these like really, really weird things show up and like take up your attention. And there's a very serious risk that like you kind of get bogged down in all of these little side stories. And so right. like we've had to really stay laser focused on like where do we as humans um, put our scientific attention because, you know, it's literally every week something was coming up where it was like, oh my goodness, this is like the craziest thing ever. If it's true, how are we going to validate it? And then like we were starting to go down these paths and like you would never get anywhere, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, so. That's, I could see that being a big issue, especially, you know, generate, like you mentioned, generating all these huge new data sets. And then you're like, oh, I could validate each one of these, but people have been depositing this you know, into this database for like a decade more, right? How can I, there's no way you can go and look at every weird sequencing result. You just don't have the manpower yeah. um, or the uh, people power, apologize. I think one thing that um, you did mention that I would just like to highlight is um, since you have this sort of GPS coordinate time, you know, files with all these sequencing libraries, do you think um, this is, something you could use to like sort of monitor, I guess, global, you know, uh, I want to say, I'm, I'm going to use the word pandemic, even though it may not be appropriate here, but um, pathogen sort of evolution. And um, I, I want to say also dispersal. I don't know if that's right way to say this. I wanted to say migration, but I don't yeah, know distribution. viruses migrate. Um, yeah. Distributions across the globe, because you mentioned it coming from Hong Kong, going out to mainland China. Um, is that sort of where you imagine a big part of this going um, for now is monitoring this? Or do you have different plans for Serratus than that? No, I mean, that's the low hanging fruit, to be honest. That's the thing that's like so obvious and so painfully there, like staring us in the face that like we have to do it. Um, in a way, it's not necessarily the most like innovative and it's not like the shiniest new thing that we could be doing with this data, but um, it, it is it is what we're building. So the way that I like to kind of like set this up um, to think about it is that the sequence read archive has been doubling its database size every two years, right? So it's undergoing exponential growth, right? And we know that the cost of sequencing has been dropping precipitously and it is continuing to drop. And there will be a new generation of sequencing technology, meaning that our ability to sample rarer and more obscure environments is going to only increase, mm -hmm. right? So if you consider that, you know, by the end of the decade, 2030, there's going to be something like 100 million samples in the sequence read archive. There are these like global viral surveillance projects and they cost hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. And if you look at their targets, it's something like, okay, we're going to generate 800,000 samples in these animal reservoirs. And that's important work, but you know, that costs a billion dollars. Whereas where we can essentially use the efforts, like almost like a grassroots, we're going to use all of the work that biologists all over the world are already doing. And just this policy that was in place from like the human genome project with like biologists share data. And we're going to use the something like $1 trillion of sequencing data that's going to be shared by the end of the decade. And for essentially peanuts, like $250,000, we'll be able to analyze all of that data and build a kind of um, open virome for everyone to use and mine. So the, the other side of this, you know, I was saying there's so many things for us to find. It's like, uh, you know, there's already more data than we could ever analyze in our lifetimes. All of the data that we generate is in the public domain. And we worked on building website interfaces, so that's serratus.io, where any researcher across the world can like you type in your favorite virus essentially, and it'll show you, okay, this is where it's been identified in the last decade. Um, here are the samples. Some of these are novel viruses. Some of these are known viruses. 
and you know it's kind of up to you to do the annotation and, and turn that in turn that raw data into meaningful scientific knowledge that's mm -hmm. the rate limiting step now is not generating the data it's going to be turning it into knowledge for for people for humans to understand and also the other side of this is of what i've been working on is trying to automate a lot of the analysis so if you look at a bunch of virology papers, when people are characterizing new viruses, it's like a cookie cutter formula almost of what needs to go into that paper. So the idea now is, can you procedurally generate as many of those figures as possible so that you can literally take your, um, you know, your favorite viral RNA virus, RDRP, put it in and it'll generate all the figures you would need for a paper to characterize the new like phylogeny or the expanded phylogeny of that virus, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think combining those two ideas is going to be really, really, really important because we're in this phase of crazy exponential data growth. Our analysis of all of this data is trivial now. Like that's the big take home message of Serratus is we can analyze data faster than the world can produce it. Like if you take one thing away from Serratus, like that's the take home. Mm -hmm. um, and now the question is, can we functionalize all of that data into um, kind of viral reports or information that's meaningful? The way I kind of also envision this or, or have said it a few times before is if a patient shows up with a fever of unknown origin in Lethbridge, it should, you know, all you got to do is sequence that patient's blood uh, and it should take two minutes and cost half a penny to connect the, the virus that's in that patient's blood to a camel sampled in sub-Saharan Africa in 2012, right? And then mm -hmm. all of that report should be generated instantly. The idea being that these zoonotic events are very, very rare, but when they do occur, it's very important that we identify them immediately when public health measures are effective. So you can like, you know, ask a dozen people to go into like lockdown for a quarantine for a couple of weeks instead of shutting down a city, right? You don't mm -hmm. let this thing get on an airplane. You catch it as soon as it occurs. That's that's the long-term goal, I think, with Serratus. So kind of no, lofty. <laughs> I, I was just about to say lofty, but I think it's I think it's a great goal. And and one of the things um, that have, I, I've admired most about uh, this work, and most, and I would say most, if not all of the work you've done, is how um, committed you've been to everything being open and being shareable. And there's not like, oh, how are you doing this? Well, I'm going to find a way to like, you know, keep it for myself and generate something with it. You've been very, um, as far as long as I've known you, maybe you had a different life before I met you. But as long as I've known you, Artem, you've been very open to collaboration and very um, almost to, you know, you've mentioned, you know, and like almost, uh, I guess, aggressively against the privatization of these sort of things, because it's, you know, it, it is for the good of everybody. And I think um, you were mentioning earlier that you would just reach out to people and you say, you'd go to hackathons, you say anybody who wants to help can help. You know, I, this, this isn't an ivory tower that only certain people that we deem worthy are allowed to come and help everybody. If you want to come in and help with a few lines of code, or if you want to help with something here, we welcome it. And so is that something you see continuing to move forward with stress? I imagine you're going to say yes, because I've just, you know, <laughs> talked you up so much. It'd be weird if you were like, no, <laughs> but no, I'm, uh, I'm privatizing everything. It's going to become proprietary. Uh, it's going to okay. be a, it's a fee for service. So every time you uh, go to the website and then you're going to have to license. No. Um, oh, and ads on the website. Forget it. Yeah. yeah. Ads for the website. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's going to track your DNA when you oh, use it. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Facebook model. Perfect. Yeah. No. So, you know, I would say being open and being like this type of transparency is a bit of a double edged sword. And like it, it kind of depends on how you wield it. Um, you obviously risk like people, you know, taking your ideas and passing them off as their own, which mm -hmm. happens. And, you know, this Serratus was kind of not immune to that. It was, there's a few kind of like, well, we, we kind of, you know, we, this was in our preprint and you're not citing our work now. But to be honest, I think the reviewers also catch that thing and then, you know, mm -hmm. it ends up being cited and it's fine. But you, you also have to like, other people are working on the same problem. So it's not like we're special in any way. 
And like, sometimes it's, you know, we're in the process of scooping someone else. Not that we want to, it's just, we're saying, okay, this is what we have. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think in general, there's like some growing pains with how science is navigating this, like, um, I would say emphasis on being first. I don't think that this is necessarily correct. Um, we should really be viewing as like, okay, things that are done concurrently, like within a bit of a time window, they, they kind of have equal value, but for whatever reason, there still is this, like, you really got to be first for, um, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever the most important work, which isn't true. That's, that's the system that we inherited. Right. Um, but you know, the, the other side of this is there's, there's like a personal, like, I would say like a tax when you're trying to hide your data, like if you go to a conference, you know, I, probably a good example is like um, in RiboWest, right? Like I was working mm-hmm. on ribosome heterogeneity. I could have been trying to like hold back the information that I knew about ribosome heterogeneity, but um, that would have cost me that I probably wouldn't have collaborated with Dylan, right? Mm-hmm. Which was a key coll- like collaboration for making the paper happen in the end, because. Mm-hmm you know, if you, you're willing to just like lay your cards on the table every time, like you go and talk to other scientists and say, okay, like, this is where I'm at. This is where I'm going. I'm just doing my best. Right. You, I think attract kind of the right group of people and like more people will be willing to like extend. It's like a trust thing, right? You're saying, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm telling you what I'm doing. I'm trusting this with you and you're building this trust. And then people are more willing to kind of reciprocate right? And so I find that it's been really good with kind of building these types of collaborations and networks very, very efficiently, right? So with Serratus, this was like really, really big with say someone like Marcos, uh, I'm going to butcher his last name, De La Pena. Um, He just emailed me, he was interested in these uh, ribozyme containing viruses. And for sure, my first instinct was like, oh man, like, is this guy going to try to like take the you know sequences that we found. There were our viruses, right? Yeah. And yeah. then like this is this is my work. I don't want to like you know have someone else come and like just steal my work. And then you know literally an hour later, I'm like, okay, like calm down, um, you know. And so I replied and I was like, listen, like, I'll, let's do it. I'll, I'll share all the data that we have. Um, you're an expert. Like, let's work on this together. I'm really happy to work with people and you know, the collaboration with Marcus has been phenomenal because he had a completely different perspective on these things than us. He had a lot of unpublished data. And so we were able to go back and forth and it just like cracked that nut. And so all of a sudden we went from like a handful, like maybe a dozen or so new of these like Delta viruses. We had like over 300 in the paper in the end. Right. And that was largely Mm -hmm. because he knew how to frame the question to analyze these things correctly. Right. No, I, yeah, I think that's very important. And yeah, uh, Dylan, who you mentioned, Dylan Girodat, yeah, was a part of that um, project that you had that predated uh, Serratus about um, hypermodification in ribosomal RNA and the specific loss of that in cancer, um, specific kinds of cancers, just so um, people have a frame for that. But that was, you know, it's another extremely interesting project and i might have dylan talk a bit about it um when i have when i ask dylan to be on here because he has agreed and so he will be on at some point he'd um, be a great person to chat with yeah he is he's, he's a great guy and so and i think i think you're right that you know the the double-edged sword is there and it is sort of the system that you know we're stuck with for now but i think as we move to this you know, preprint era, we've shown that the system can change, right? You can now yeah. put your data out there and you don't have to convince anyone. You can say, here it is. Anyone feel free to criticize this. I've written it up. Here's the thing, right? I don't have to pay somebody or convince an editor. This is worth putting on the internet. Anyone can read immediately. And so if there is going to be change on that scale, we can facilitate it and say, you know, there. I think you're exactly correct in that, you know, there's so many times that you corners are cut and there's this, you know, there's this huge pressure to be first that I'm sure, you know, it, it sort of incentivizes bad behavior and sort of rewards it a little bit, right. Where you are secretive and you're, you know, trying to like, you know, undercut somebody and get something out first, or it, it might even go so far as to encourage fabrication, 
if the pressure is high enough, you could see how someone might be pushed there, right? To go, you know, this is my career. To play devil's advocate, I think it also, um, it does though motivate people to get stuff out and to do their work, right? So like, I think there needs to be some kind of like, there needs to be competition. I I really Mm -hmm. strongly believe that like, um, competition brings out like many of the best traits in like pushing people forward and like getting Mm -hmm. the most out of us as scientists to like not become complacent. But it, you know, you're right where it also brings out these like, I, you know, if if the scientist's shitty, then it brings out the shitty traits of that scientist, right? Where they're willing to do uh, like fabricate data or cut corners or something like that. And so it's, it's a tough thing. I think like, we almost need to, you know, science is like almost engineering out the humanity of the researcher, right? Where like, we really need to be almost like machines and and how we approach things, but creative machines, but then not let our egos get in the way. I would say that's the big folly of like modern science is like, it's so ego driven. Um, But if we can step back from that, that would be, um, I think a really big advance. And that was one thing that I, I really loved about Serratus, if I can just come full circle on this. Um, we we all published as like equal kind of first authors, right? So mm-hmm. 15 people are the authors of the Serratus paper and it has like the notation and everyone contributed equally. And that was like the philosophy going in was, and I think, you know, uh, part of the team was like, everyone can join and then you become an equal member of the Serratus team and there's no hierarchy. It's you come in, like you do your piece, like make a significant contribution. And that is an equal contribution to everyone else's like, Oh, you really have to value everyone's willing to put in their time and like their blood and tears and into a project like this. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a very, and I actually hadn't noticed that. Um, I, cause I, 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 you know, my apologies, but I did scroll down past the authors to read the abstract real quick. <laughs> but um, I think that's very, I think that's very admirable, and I think that's something that also heavily incentivizes collaboration, right? Yeah. As you go, well, if I'm joining as an equal partner, it's a lot more, you know, um, appealing um, to people to want to join and share. And they go, well, okay, if we're all equal, that's fine. Maybe you wouldn't, if you had something, you thought, well, this might be my big chance. You might be unwilling, you know, to join and share if you want to keep it for yourself. But if it's all equal that could maybe be alleviated yeah well i mean th- that was like also you know i guess my job is kind of like wrangling people to join yeah. the project was um try to make that like not make that ramp too steep and make it seem like everyone can contribute and we've gotten like amazing contributions um you know parts of the project i never even imagined like the whole front end and the website that was done by people with like really software engineering backgrounds right and mm-hmm. um so dan and victor really spearheaded that um and you know that was like that was like a orthogonal set of skills that i didn't have and they they kind of had the vision to be like okay we could do this and i'm like okay then it would should look like this and blah 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 you go back and forth and then after a few months, you have a web interface, and then that changes the character of the project. It stops right. being just like a database. It starts being, well, here's a fully explorable database where anyone can just like go in a web browser and find these new viruses, right? So it it really increases the value of the whole thing with this kind of um, outside expertise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really drives up the accessibility of the data to somebody maybe perhaps without as much bioinformatician you know, knowledge yeah. as there was on the team. Yeah, for sure. Um, no, and that's, yeah, all in all, I think, I think it's a fantastic project. I love, you know, the community aspect of it. I love the whole um, way that it came into fruition. I even like the way that it was like thought up of, or just like over a couple of beers or something. I think that's where a lot of these, and, and you mentioned, you know, keeping the humanity in science. And now we've sort of pushed to a point where we have to make decisions about like, which parts of these data are important because we can analyze and we can sequence as fast as we can. And you mentioned the bottleneck is now deciding which parts of the sequence data should we spend time validating and looking at. Um, And so do you think that that is going to be a major hurdle for like the next sort of 
decade of science is just deciding how to make answer ask the right questions or do you think that they'll will be able to come up with some sort of you know you hate to say again like computer driven way to do this but do you think you know ai might be helpful in identifying certain things like that or i used ai there very broadly you know as someone who doesn't do it but no no so you absolutely hit the nail on the head right the the real question is are we going to be able to kind of extend human knowledge through machine augmented in flight knowledge right or artificial intelligence can AI help us parse complex data into meaningful units that we can then interpret. Um, there's kind of two sides of this. One is um, the database side, and that is saying, well, it kind of doesn't matter if we interpret all the data today. What's kind of important is we collect the data today, put it in a way where it's accessible or like lookupable, right? Indexable. Mm -hmm. And then that data will help us in 10 years, like when we need it, when we really need it, it should be instantaneous to find it. Which if you think about like the SARS-CoV-2 sample, like imagine we had, um, had you know, higher density sampling and all those like uh, Chinese caves, right? Where mm -hmm. SARS-CoV-2 came out and right away, it was like a two minute or five minute search to say, okay, well, this virus actually came from exactly this cave, da, da, da. And you can like put those epidemiological bits together, right? right? Right away. There's not this ambiguity about its origin. And so that's one frame. And that's that's a very good, I think, frame to start with. We're saying the data itself is valuable as a database. And right. we may not ever have a human inspect every little corner of this database, but the the like density of the data will be rich enough that when humans need to go to a particular area or a particular group of viruses, we have way better information about those viruses. That's great. The, the next question is like, can we get like a better, say like holistic picture about viral phylogeny, viral evolution by looking at all of the data? And this is where you probably would be using machine learning or some kind of ways of representing such complex data mm -hmm. into units that are more um, that can like be distilled into something that we would understand, right? right? Phylogenies in general would become increasingly like if viruses, if virus numbers are growing exponentially and like what we've characterized and phylogenies are going to be growing exponentially. Um, yeah. All the computation associated with the annotations are going to be growing exponentially. There will be more and more exceptions to anything that defines a virus. Yeah. So one of the like really cool um, things that we found were six of the corona, seven of the coronaviruses that um, we identified. Um, they we show with fairly high probability that they probably have segmented genomes, right? So mm -hmm. usually you think of a coronavirus as one single uh, molecule as its genome. There's very good evidence that um, these aquatic coronaviruses. They occur on two segments with spike and some of the structural genes on a different molecule than the RDRP and the helicase. Hmm. And so that in, in a way like that challenges the textbook definition of what a coronavirus is because, you know, you open up your textbook, it says it's one molecule. And as our understanding of viral diversity increases, pretty much every definition or every way that we conceptualize viruses is going to be breaking down. And the question is like, where are the meaningful delineations between species? I mean, species is a terrible term to begin with. So it's just there as like, a, you know, maybe like a vestigial term from when we were talking about like animals really, or plants. Right. So the, I, I guess my point being is, um, it's going to become really hairy in like understanding what viruses are and like what they're capable of in evolutionary time as we sample more of them. And so trying to make sense of that using some kind of machine classifiers would be good, but um, I don't know if it's going to, I don't know if that's going to actually translate into like that matters to a human. That's right. I guess my main thing is like, yeah, we'll have these better classifications, but like, what are we really classifying better at that point? Yeah, what are you getting? Yeah, you can classify them all day long. 
it's the same sort of thing that people have been arguing about this for biology, you know, forever being like, oh, well, you know, I, when I was first introduced to the topic by a biology professor of mine, he said, oh, there's two groups. There's like the splitters and the joiners yeah. in biology. And they go, no, those are the same. And they, so they're guys, no, those are different. And they go, at the end of the day, does it matter too much? You know, if it's just for, you know, there are definitely areas in which it might matter, but I think on the large scale of things, if these two viruses are very, very similar and you're trying to draw thin lines between some of them and they get so complex and so different, you go, well, I really just need information about how, you know, it depends, I guess, the kind of person you are. Do you care about, um, you know, the evolution and the molecular sort of underpinnings of what's going on and you want to understand these things? Or are you just saying, I need to know if where this virus came from, like you'd mentioned, I need to know who needs to quarantine and what needs to happen right now. I don't really care if it's the exact same as this other one, as long as, you know, the sequence data says they're, you know, X so much aligned, you know. I, I think that, like, the, you're framing it exactly the right way, uh, at least in terms of, like, clinical information, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, we have in our minds such separate entities that are the variants of SARS-CoV-2, so alpha, beta, uh, yeah. delta, and omicron, right? Like, these, the, like, people... Um, very often say, oh, these are different species, like lay people, right? Because yeah. like we're, we're we're dealing with them in different mental like boxes, right? Yeah. Um, if you look at them like phylogenetically, it's the exact same virus, right? Yeah. More importantly, if you look at it phylogenetically, SARS-CoV-2, all of the SARS-CoV-2 and all these mental boxes that we have of distinguishing the different variants and like things like Banal 50, RATG13, those are all the same virus. So SARS-CoV-2 then is mainly a bat coronavirus with most of its diversity and a bunch of different bats uh, all across Asia. And then there's just like this one little outcrop that is SARS-CoV-2, right? Yeah. But all of our human knowledge is dominated by this SARS-CoV-2 and the subvariants of it, which by the like RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, they're essentially invariant. All the variant, mm -hmm. like the variants, don't have much differences at the amino acid level um, within the RDRP. Mm -hmm. And so the idea then is like, you know, where or as the density of information increases, will we be able to like make that kind of clinical distinction where it's it's not really even saying, oh, this is this type of virus, but like this virus. Um, with whatever sequence feature is more likely to like pose a danger for humans or for our cows as a as like livestock, right? And so trying to infer more meaningful clinical data from the sequences, I think would be a really cool way to like push machine learning. But I so far haven't seen that done in, in a way where I would hang my hat on the results, right? right. And it, you know, it also kind of underestimates the capacity of evolution where it, we've seen how like a few seemingly small changes seem to have a profound impact on like the presentation of a virus, right? Yeah. Uh, or how it like, how it works in the clinic. But to make that interpretation without having that like clinical data backing it up, again, for that, those like early outbreaks, Mm -hmm. um, that this is it, I guess, a bit pie in the sky thinking. Like, but you know, this is what I'm trying to like think about when when you're thinking about a project over ten years and thinking right. about data that's growing exponentially. Like, you need to think about like where are going to be the frontiers of making sense of that data. No, that's great, and I think, uh, I mean, even even just sitting here, it's, this is it's a lot to digest, and I've really enjoyed this whole conversation and even just I'm, I'm trying to I'm thinking about these things now while we're talking and I'm you know like you mentioned pie in the sky I'm like wow like things are going to change drastically in the next decade in terms of healthcare and all this stuff and I just I want to you know take some time to thank you um, for talking with us today about you know it was it was great to like hear about this project not only read about it but now hear and just like hear about all of the things that went into it and everyone's sort of collaborative spirit in this project and i just wanted to is uh do you have any any final thoughts any things you want to leave us with um uh, oh yeah if, if the you answer is no out, we'll cut if, it <laughs> if uh if you want to help out with the serratus project shoot me an email um you know where we're always looking for kind of new blood 
Um, if you have a crazy, you know, viral discovery project or, you know, some kind of phylogeny, like let's do it. I think right now my answer so far has been like to anyone who wants to collaborate, I'm like, let's just try, right? Like there's so many cool questions that have opened up when you can start thinking about like data and sequencing data, not just like from a few hundred or a few thousand data sets, but in the millions to say, mm -hmm. can we reuse the globe's sequencing data that this opens a whole new um, box of, or like it's it's like a whole new way of looking at sequencing data. And right. so, you know, I, I'm really happy to, to work with new people and collaborate and try out new ideas. That's great. And so if people want to get in touch with you, um, well, I know they can go to rrna.ca. Don't know how you snagged <laughs> that domain. It's a sweet one. Um, just for your own personal stuff. I know uh, you mentioned serratus.io um, if you're interested in looking at the project. Um, but in terms of uh, getting in contact with you, you mentioned email, but uh, email, Twitter, what, what, how would you prefer people contact you for any sort of inquiry? Yeah, uh, you can just email me at rtem at rrna.ca um, and then I'll get that. Um, but, you know, or any way that you can. I don't know. Like if you're around Cambridge, then, you know, try to track me down and we'll, <laughs> yeah. I, I won't be weirded out if you find me and say, hey, you, uh, yeah. hey, Artem, let's talk about viruses. No, that's good to know. And yeah, if you, you know, if you find them at the climbing wall, something like that, you know, as long as all the, uh, the belaying stuff is safely equipped, I'm sure Artem will be happy to have a conversation. And uh, yeah, one final thank you. Um, this was a great conversation. Mm. Thanks for having me, Luke. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Artem. Dr. Artem Babian is a Banting Research Fellow at the University of Cambridge. If you have comments or suggestions, write to us. Our email is theribosomepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at theribosomepodcast. This show is produced by Liana Boris, Simon Hoser, Malgozata Rosalska, and myself, Luke Roberts. Thanks so much for joining us. Keep your bench clean and your RNA pure.